Today on Pilot's Discretion, our guest is ForeFlight founder Tyson Weiss. He shares some stories from the early days of app development, his tips for flying with Datalink weather, and what part of general aviation he'd like to see disrupted. Pilot's Discretion starts right now. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, John Zimmerman of Sporties. A reminder to visit sporties.com slash podcast for show links and access to our archives with every episode of Pilot's Discretion. And as always, we welcome your comments by email, podcast at sporties.com. Today's episode has been in the works for over a year, so I'm excited to be sitting down finally in person, no less, with Tyson Weiss. He founded ForeFlight over a decade ago as a side project, and since then it has grown to become aviation's top app, essentially defining what it means to be an electronic flight bag. He's also an active pilot, flying everything from single-engine pistons to twin jets, and he serves on the boards of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum and the General Aviation Manufacturers Association. Tyson, welcome to Pilot's Discretion. John, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's good to be together after a year of uh, putting this together and a couple of years of being in the COVID isolations. <laughs> I want to get right into some practical iPad tips. So let's talk about how pilots use EFB apps. It seems like things really changed maybe five years ago, four years ago, where a lot of these apps, including ForeFlight, became much more than just weather and charts. They became really systematic flight planning tools, navigation tools. So let's start with pre-flight. What's the right way to plan a flight in ForeFlight? What's your flow? You know, it depends on the airplane that I'm flying and the mission that, that I've, I've got going on. For example, you know, if I'm just taking the Cirrus up locally, I really start on the map. And you know, the map has evolved over the years and, and really started as a place where we wanted pilots to come in and play, right? So they can, they can play with layers, they can change you know, the weather markers, and they could just explore. Because often on a weekend, we're just looking for something to do, and the map is a great way to, uh, to explore that. So, you know, if I'm just going in the local area, I'm going to start with the basics, which is um, I'm up in the mountains now. So one of the new things I start with is what does the terrain look like around me? And I use one of the features we added recently to set the altitude of the airplane while I'm on the ground uh, and see, and I can see uh, what sort of terrain obstacles around me. Then I'm, if, if it's, you know, if I'm flying within a relatively short period of time from when I'm planning, then I'm cycling through the marker layers on the map. So I typically start with the aeronautical map up. I typically have the composite radar layer turned on. Uh, I usually have the flight categories uh, layer turned on. And then I'll cycle through you know, like the temperature dew point spread. Um, and that was you know, particularly relevant in, in, in the coast where uh, you know, that really affected you know, visibility. I'll look at the wind layers to see what the surface winds are looking like in the area. And then from there, of course, I'm looking at fuel prices also, and um, just cycling through each one of those layers to scout out some places uh, to go fly and, and enjoy myself. And then, then I'll start looking at the basic flight planning calculations, starting with time, distance, and fuel. Right, if I've got a certain amount of time I've allocated to fly on a on a given you know week or, or weekend, uh, I'm going to take a look at you know what the ET is, e is and and how long I actually want to be in the airplane and start planning out legs based on on that. So that's sort of where I start uh, when I'm flying just in, in a local patch or local area uh, for fun. Uh, if I'm flying long distance and, for example, flying in the jet, I really start on the flights tab because I'm interested in very quickly understanding, one, whether I've got the range to make the trip. And so I'm you know, putting in departure destination and I'm 
picking a route uh, and very quickly trying to get to time and route uh, and fuel and understand whether or not I can execute the mission with uh, what I plan to bring aboard the airplane, right? So if the family's with me, I'm taking a look at what my reserves might be, you know, on landing, uh, what the weather is like at departure and destination. So I can understand whether or not I'm flying within my limits. And then related to limits, you know, I'm, I'm really looking at in, in an IFR situation, whether or not the cloud ceilings, for example, are uh, high enough above uh, an MDA or DA to be comfortable flying uh, that particular flight on that day. Uh, and then, and then I take a look at the briefing and try to get a big overview of the, um, uh, weather in route. Uh, I actually use the PDF briefing, which uh, is something you can change in the settings view. And I like that because it gives me one big document that I can very quickly scan through. And there's an element in that briefing, which is the, the cross-section chart. And that's my favorite. So I can take a look at the profile of my flight. Uh, it shows me what the winds at altitude look like, shows me where um, uh, I might have icing and turbulence. And that's a really quick way to get uh, a quick thumbnail sketch of um, weather along the route. And then I'll scan down to the NOTAM section and see if there's anything um, affecting my flight there. I mean, interesting related to NOTAMs, I've run into you know a lot of, of things recently where you know DAs and MDAs have changed and um, you know airport work going on and that sort of stuff. So of course, a quick scan to the NOTAMs is is required. So those are two different approaches that I take. Um, again, the map driven one and then um, the flights driven approach. Of course, all that's backed up with the scan through the airport's view to take really look at the FBO and what's available there and um, prices and fees and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think you mentioned two features there that not enough for-flight pilots probably use. One is the flights tab, which especially if you're IFR, I think is a really powerful tool. I also like the aeronautical map layer, which maybe seems obvious these days, but I know some pilots are really are still in love with the sectional charts, which have their place, but uh, that aeronautical map layer just uh, has so much data and is so easy to read because it's data-driven. So yeah. uh, I'm a big fan of that as well. And, and I, I wonder as we transition in flight then, so after you've planned it, same tools, obviously you're probably on the maps page, but what are your habits and kind of your scan in flight? Yeah, it depends on on the airplane also. Um, in If I'm flying the Cirrus, for example, I have an iPad mini. Actually, I have two iPads. I have the I have the mini and then I have the, you know, the really big one, uh, the iPad pro and on the mini, I've got that in a, um, knee board, uh, one of the aluminum knee boards with a strap there. And has got a, a notepad on top of that. And in the Cirrus, the iPad is always open. So I've got it in this case, either connected to, you know, connects and, or Sentry. Uh, usually I have both. I have a Sentry aboard and so I'll Wi-Fi connect to, um, Sentry and Bluetooth connect, uh, to the airplane. Uh, and then if it's an IFR flight. You know, one of the things that's up pretty consistently now for me is the plates tab because we redesigned the plates binder so that we've organized instrument plates in different categories like you know the airport information, um, departure, uh, arrivals, and approaches. And so I can quickly scan through that information. And if I'm on a departure, for example, I might have you know, obviously the departure up. But in the piston, I've got it always in, uh, on my knee. In the in the bigger airplane. I actually don't have it on my lap the entire flight. I fly behind um, a Garmin G3000, and I've got six different maps up on on the PFD and the MFD essentially there. And in that case, I'm really using ForeFlight for again like plate review, uh, and then I'm and then I'm using it for flight following and en route weather and traffic. So definitely using it to do scenario planning. You know, long range, I have you know ADSB weather and traffic up you know religiously, and then. Uh, Again, you know, 
reference that plates tab uh, quite a bit. So again, it depends on what, what airplane I'm flying, you know, smaller airplanes, I'm going to have it on my knee. If I'm flying in a backcountry airplane, like a Husky or something like that, then it becomes really a primary you know, flight display for me. Um, and, uh, use it a lot more, uh, use, use it differently than, um, when it's bigger airplane. So you mentioned ADSB, which brings me back to a meeting. I think you and I had at Sun and Fun, maybe 10 or 11 years ago, where we were talking about this new technology called ADSB, And there was this, this idea that you could get subscription free data link weather from it, which sounded too good to be true. And we talked about maybe making a portable weather receiver so that you could see radar and for flight. Today, I would venture to say most GA pilots are flying with some type of data link weather, uh, like a Century or Stratus. Besides just the the comfort factor and the convenience of having that, do you think that's made an impact on safety? Absolutely. I, I think the two biggest things that have impacted safety, um, or really that's sort of three. One is you know, the invention of the iPad. The second was uh, apps. And you know, I think ForeFlight uh, has played a big role in that. And the third is... Um, ADSB weather and traffic. Um, I remember, you know, my first solo cross country, gosh, in 2002, and I had a printout and a lot of pilots listening may not, you know, re- remember how this used to work, but, you know, you'd print out a, a weather briefing from, you know, a Duots terminal or um, uh, another computer in the FBO and you print that out and take it with you. Well, that's so far in the past now, it's hard to imagine you know, that being a, a, a way of flying. But the fact that we can get weather in flight has been, I think, a huge benefit to to safety. And that that's backed up by, you know, sort of the, the, the love letters we get from customers regularly. You know, I remember uh, a pilot and his daughter flying into San Marcos, Texas uh, in a Piper on an instrument approach, you know, went to put the gear down and had an electrical failure. And he essentially shot a localizer approach with four flight his ADSV receiver and uh, live to tell about it. And, and I think that's happened in, in more instances than, than we know. It's keeping pilots out of weather. I mean, the, the number of in-flight weather-related incidents that I think we've seen over the past few years has, has seen a dramatic decline. I think I remember, you know, at, at some gamma board meetings, seeing the statistics on controlled flight and terrain and how that changed after GPS receivers integrated terrain and terrain warnings. And I think the same thing has happened as a result of pilots being able to get low cost data link weather. I think if we look at the numbers, and, and I remember this being a feature of, uh, gosh, probably a, an AOPA null report a number of years ago, which is the number of in-flight weather-related incidences have gone down uh, dramatically since 2012. Yeah, I've seen that same graph. It is pretty notable, uh, the the drop-off, and can't help but think technology is a part of that. We often hear when it comes to data link weather, you know, the weather's delayed or, uh, you know, there are there are caveats to remember. So what's the right way to fly with a data link weather receiver? If I've got my sentry up there on the on the side window and four flight open, I mean, sure, I'm not going to go busting through red cells, but beyond that, what's what's the strategic mindset I should have when I'm flying with data link weather? I mean, I think it's just what you said, which is, um, you know, keep a, keep a wide berth, right? Honestly, I don't think much about the time anymore. I mean, I can remember, you know, in the early the early days of us, you, you're bringing these devices to market, a lot of discussion and drama around the delay. And I really don't feel like that's a big part of the conversation anymore. Uh, we recognize that there is a delay. And, uh, you know, I think you know, in general, if you don't have a radar on board, you should you know, keep the prescribed widths around the different, uh, more intense cells that we're seeing. 
going towards red or uh, anywhere near red, you know, not, not something I do. But the other thing that's helpful about, uh, you know, Sentry and ForeFlight is the looping feature now, right? So I think not only are you looking to avoid those cells that may be delayed, but you can also animate the weather in flight. And that should give you a sense of where things are trending, right? And so, you know, my strategy really is to just keep such a wide berth that I don't really have to stress uh, too hard about it. And that's really around for me in a piston airplane is you know, staying away from yellow and in a bigger airplane, the flight levels, I'm staying you know, pretty far away from red, but that's like sort of the simplest way to, to explain that. I also use the four color radar setting, which helps, I think, make things a little more clear in terms of where the boundaries are around different convective and, and precipitation activity. So that's how I use that. Yeah. You mentioned earlier having a printout of weather. My example of that is the old days you'd be on a center frequency maybe and the controller would say as a convective segment from 20 west of nowhere to you know 30 north of nowhere to 50 east of nowhere and could never get good at all about drawing that in my mental map of where that was and nowadays you just you miss it before you even get close there's no more uh, fly up close to that line and then see where it looks best and find a hole now you just miss the whole thing say i'm going to change my flight plan and and not even spill the coffee that's sort of my approach you know i I, I chuckle now when I hear uh, a controller say, you know, hazardous weather available for the, the area on flight watch, you know, SIGMET issued. And you're like, I mean, you're kind of, we're all just, I think they're all just sitting there kind of chuckling because it's, it's on the screen already. Uh, and I wonder if they know that, look, everybody's already got this stuff in the airplane anyway. So, and, and, you know, you can't get your protractor out and, and, and draw where this stuff is because, you know, we don't have paper charts, you know, in our airplanes anymore. But um, it's funny to hear those reports uh, on the radio because m many of us are staring at our iPads and, and have the data link weather already on it. Yeah, we, we always joke when you, they come on and read, especially in the summertime in the southeast, you know, every state in the southeast, there's a convective segment. In other words, it's an afternoon in the southeast United States. So it goes without saying. One thing that... Um, I think is overlooked is maybe that some of these receivers like a Sentry can do more than just weather. And we recently launched a new version of Sentry, Sentry Plus, which has a really slick feature that I think I didn't appreciate at first, which is a flight data recorder. And to me, paired with that four flight track log replay feature, it's really made me examine some of my flying and be a little more data driven about it. So tell me about using track logs to make yourself a better pilot and going beyond just the weather feature. Yeah. So one of the things I use it for is convenience of making logbook entries, right? So it kind of starts right there. Um, I, I, I've gotten sort of in a rhythm of getting my track logs off of my sentry after every flight. That's what I use to draft my logbook entry. I feel like my logbook entries are richer. I can go back and remember something about that uh, flight. And then I'm frequently going back and taking a look at an approach, right? Like, especially if I've had an, an unusual one, I wanted to go back and, and scan that. An example of something that happened recently that caused me to go back and look at the track log was I actually had an RA going into Long Beach Airport uh, inside the final approach fix, uh, and it was a descend RA. So when that happens, you know, your avionics uh, you know, transform uh, and they start barking commands at you, uh, you know, descend. Um, you know, and I was at uh, probably 900 AGL at that point, had to descend for about 150 feet to clear the RA. We think it ultimately was a, um, a misfire, but I wanted to know like how much altitude was involved in that, right? So I went back to the track log. I could pinch into that segment of the flight and I could see what the altitude and the speed changes were uh, there. 
Another thing that uh, I'm particularly interested in because it's been uh, you know, a hot issue in, in the safety community is uh, landing distances, right? I mean, where am I touching down and uh, how long is my rollout or my takeoff ground roll? So I can get some basic information about that from the four flight track log system. If I want to get you know, super geeky about it, then I'm going to export it over to something like Cloudavoy and I get a lot more uh, insight into those different segments and distances uh, and things like that. And then sometimes it's cool to go back and share the flight in 3D through an interesting area after I'm completed a flight or hanging out with the family or friends. Uh, and now that my son's learning how to fly, I can show him some of the um, you know approaches I've done into uh, mountainous areas and things like that. So definitely when I have a, a, an unusual event on a flight, I go back to that segment and want to understand you know how I did in in that particular maneuver. Tyson, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with some more questions. Introducing the next generation portable ADS-B receiver from ForeFlight. Sentry Plus includes all the safety features pilots love about its predecessor, including subscription-free data link weather and a built-in carbon monoxide detector, but adds an industry-leading 18-hour battery life and a first-of-a-kind OLED data display with live flight metrics. Its high-performance track log recorder ensures you never lose a flight with automatic on-device logging and importing to ForeFlight, further enhanced with new G-load tracking for both in-flight reference and post-flight debriefing. Sentry Plus is the all-in-one iPad upgrade that will make your next flight safer and more comfortable. For more information, visit sporties.com sentry. Now, back to pilot's discretion. We're back with Tyson Weiss. And Tyson, let's talk about the business of apps. We talked a little bit about how apps are used, but I'd like you to try to turn off your humility filter for a minute if you can. And let's go back to the early days of ForeFlight when the company really first took off. What do you think you got right that other companies didn't? Yeah, I think I think the first thing that we got right was we had embraced the platform and the opportunity. We were just excited about it. Um, you know, I remember um going to the uh the galleria in the in houston and getting the ipad like on that a friday night when they came out slid to unlock and 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 a week later uh jason and i had you know modified our code to work on a browser on an iphone right and you know you learn in business school that a first mover advantage is not a sustainable advantage right and um we had first mover um, and so, you know, from there, the challenge was how do we, um, turn that into something uh, that was sustainable. And for the first three years of the business, it was just the iPhone business, um, which, um, was a nice hobby business, but it wasn't a quit your day job business. When the iPad came out, that's when things really transformed. And, um, you know, we not only saw that initial uptake, um, but we saw competitors flood into the market. Um, and so. I think we recognized at that time that um, we were going to have to move um, fast, and in order to move fast, we had to build a team. And we were fortunate that we started that team building pretty early to build, you know, as we say, you know, a number of lanes of development capacity uh, in the business to be able to tackle uh, the things that were coming at us. And and as you remember, it was just sort of nonstop. I mean, like. You know, the iPad came out and you go, okay, um, we can put a bunch of stuff on it. Well, what, what do we put on it? Well, we put in VFR sectionals and then we put instrument plates and then 
then the, then the GPS iPads came out and you go, okay, well, what can we do with that? And then GPS accessories came out, right? So there was a, just a ton of innovation um, happening um, uh, with the iPad and everything that it was enabling. The other big thing I would say is we leapt on and committed to some uh, to building technology around some of these disruptions. Like ADSB was hugely disruptive, right? And so uh, I think I think we got in early. Honestly, I think we spent a lot of time developing really great partnerships. I mean, we partnered with the AOPA early on um, that uh, provided us a, a lot of brand awareness. We had a party, uh, a partnership with you and in, uh, in early on, and we built an application called Sporty's Plates uh, back in the day when um, you know, we thought there was a market for not only the integrate, what we call now the integrated app, but something that was bespoke uh, for just looking at instrument plates. So we had some really good partners along the way. And then I think ADSB was a huge tailwind for the business. I look back now uh, and I think, you know, we probably both look back and go, had we not done the work we did uh, early days with ADSB and embraced that, there wouldn't be a business today that would have gone to a competitor. Uh, and we might be just reflecting on the time we had uh, versus, you know, still in it. So I think leaping on those uh, disruptive innovations was really important. And then just being voracious about continuing to add features that uh, made our lives easier. And we took on progressively harder things, you know, like I remember years ago going to MBAA and, and customers there were asking us, you know, when we were going to do accurate fuel calculations for jets. And it took us a while to get to that, but we integrated it. We did it better than anybody else. And then we did the same thing recently with runway analysis, which is um, for bigger aircraft, a critically important and essential calculation for computing distances and the speeds that the airplane take, takes off uh, or lands at. And we integrated those things. So I think it was a combination of one, you sort of, some books say being born in the right decade, uh, where you know we happen to have the skills that were critical for building apps on a new platform. We had the domain expertise and the passion around that. And then we uh, happened to be right when some major disruptions happened. And it was iPhone, iPad, uh, GPS in the iPad, GPS accessories, and then portable ADSB. I mean, those are the big drivers of the business. Was there a feature along the way? Because you all do such a great job of continually shipping new features. Is there a feature there you ship that looks simple to the user that is actually quite difficult on your end mm. that you wish maybe more? Pilots appreciated what's going on under the hood. Displaying weather <laughs> um, and displaying weather from uh, an ADSB feed, you know, the uh, that and, and maybe the map itself. Um, one of the things that I think you quickly recognize when you, you know, use another app is how fast the ForeFlight map engine is. I mean, how quickly it displays lots of information, aeronautical information, you know, airport markers. Uh, colored and shaded terrain with weather animating on top of it with all the different weather layers that we provide. Um, it looks, um, I think after you use it a while, just you would just expect it to do what it does. And it seems very, very simple, but the amount of technology in that that makes it do what it does is incredibly complex. So what's your strategy for continuing to ship those features? I mean, that's obviously not easy. It's a software business. Lots of software businesses struggle with this. But how do you stay committed to continually shipping new features? You, you guys have been doing it you know, year after year now, not just for a short term. Uh, what, what's the approach there that gets that result? Yeah, I think you know, first is having a vision, right? Like what do we want to build? And then scaling the business to be able to you know, have, again, the lanes of development capacity to do that. 
and I, and I think a big part is, is staying active and having our product managers stay active in, in flying. I mean, you know, the leadership team of the company is populated with pilots. Uh, a lot of our product management team populated with pilots. And I can see those pilots, you know, who've sort of grown up in the foreflight culture and way, uh, inventing things now in a way that we used to do when we were, you know, really hands-on code. For example, like the new terrain system that was built. I provided feedback to that, but the team really took, took, took that and ran with it. So I think, you know, part of the strategy is, you know, giving people the freedom to find an innovation and bring it to market. That happened with the, the profile view recently, which we just shipped, right? And so we have to listen for those, those ideas that uh, the team members are bringing up, and then we have to put, um, you know, our effort, effort behind that. But the most important thing is, one, to have a vision that's largely influenced by either working with customers directly or being in the domain ourselves and then putting energy behind bringing those things uh, out. And I think, you know, that's, that's pretty simple, which is, you know, we've been doing that since we started, which is we have an idea, you know, guys like, you know, you and I sit around a table and talk about ideas and those ideas become uh, part of the product. Like we were talking earlier about how uh, we didn't adopt uh, traffic early on. Right. And we just sat around a table and said, well, that's pretty important to you know, put that in. So that's, that's, there's not a lot of science to it other than um, people in the domain with the skill uh, and continuing to pay really close attention to what customers want and what we think we need for ourselves. So the word disruption is high on my list of words that have been used and abused to the point of being meaningless. But I do think in the case of Foreflight, what you've done in aviation is almost exactly what Clayton Christensen wrote about in his famous book. So as somebody who has been involved in a disruptive technology, what other parts of general aviation need to be disrupted? Uh, IFR clearances. <laughs> uh, okay, tell me more. So, you know, one of the things we did a proof of concept with uh, the FAA and their sort of sister research arm MITRE years ago was demonstrate how a pilot could get a clearance on their mobile phone. And it's surprisingly simple. You know, we built an application or, or the capability into an application that would let you say, you know, like I'm sitting in Batavia, Ohio, and I don't want to call flight service. I want to get a clearance. I want to acknowledge that clearance. And then I want to depart. I think in hindsight, we would view that technology as obvious, but it takes a lot of change at the FAA to be able to do that. Right. So I think that would be another thing that if we could get that capability out there, that will save lives because we know that there's stories of pilots blasting off uh, VFR, trying to get their IFR clearance. They're busy uh, in and out of the clouds, you know, hit terrain, right? Um, so I think we can, uh, we can solve that. You know, the other thing I think that's really interesting is, uh, and you and I talked about this earlier, which is, you know, I got it, we got an Oculus recently for the first time. We plugged it in a Microsoft Flight Simulator. And my reaction was, this is the future of air traffic control, right? I mean, you know, do we need, um, the controller sitting in towers uh, when we have um, that sort of technology. Now, it's not there uh, in terms of its resolution, but I think that's something that uh, opens up some opportunities for disrupting the way that we, we do things as well. All right, Tyson, it's time for our ready to copy segment. So I'll ask some questions on a wide variety of topics, both aviation and non-aviation, and you give me your quick answer. So as somebody who just talked about IFR clearances, are you ready to copy? I'm ready to copy. <laughs> What's your favorite four-flight feature that more pilots should be using? Uh, the terrain uh, advisor. What's a myth about flying with an iPad that we can bust here today? Uh, it's, to fly. it's unsuitable to fly with. 
It's not legal, right? I still hear that once in a while. Yeah, you still got to have paper charts. <laughs> it's not legal. Yeah, that's the right answer. It's not legal. What emerging technology are you most excited about? Is it is it VR? Is it something else? I am excited about VR. If you ran the world for a week, what would you do to grow participation in aviation? Pay for everybody's pilot's license. <laughs> 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 Fair answer. It's not my money, right? <laughs> I know a lot of software developers who are also pilots. Now, I grant that this could be a glaring case of selection bias, but in your opinion, do you think software people are naturally attracted to aviation in some way, or is that just a bad sample on my part? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think um, I think the challenge of flying is is interesting to a lot of software developers, but I think we've got some self-selection bias, which is we have a lot of software developers who are in aviation reach out to us, um, I think because of their you know affection and appreciation of the product. So uh, I don't know. What's the toughest stage when growing a company? Is it going from two employees to 10, 50 to 100? Where is there, where is there really a break point there that's challenging? I think it's scaling above about 50 people. All right, we're going outside aviation as we like to do. If I'm eating in Charleston, South Carolina, what is the best dish I should order? Is it shrimp and grits or is there something better that I should be getting at a nice restaurant in downtown Charleston? Oh, I think shrimp and grits is a good, good answer. All right, you're a pretty good tennis player, so I need your opinion on this topic as well. A question for the ages. Who is the greatest player of our generation on the men's side? Is it Nadal? Is it Federer? Is it Djokovic? Whose side are you on? It's Federer. And why is that? His ability, uh, his charisma, and um, his uh, grace. All right, Tyson, our last question is always the same on pilot's discretion. You have one final flight, and we want to know, what are you flying and where are you going? I'm flying an A-10, and uh, I'm flying it uh, along the beach in Charleston, where I grew up and used to see them fly down the beach. Tyson, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Pilot's Discretion, brought to you by Sporties, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and links to additional information, visit sporties.com slash podcast. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion. We'll be right back.